0: Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello everyone and welcome back. I know that I haven't been posting regularly uh, we've started up school again, and I'm trying to figure out a good workflow to get these episodes coming out uh, more regularly. So please bear with me, but um, I'll see what I can do and starting to push out more episodes going forward. This episode is going to be nice and short. We're going to be talking about Alma 6, which is kind of an interesting little chapter. It's all of eight verses, and that's actually how Mormon structured it. This is one of those places in the Book of Mormon where our modern chapter break lines up with Mormon's chapter break. So just remind us of where we are. Alma has just finished speaking to the church in Zarahemla. Remember, they have this pride problem. They've developed a culture of privilege and that culture has led them to start persecuting those, who either aren't as privileged as they are or aren't giving in to that vanity. We can safely assume that Alma did more work with the church in Zarahemla than just one chapter's worth of sermons. There's some good reasons to think that the sermons that we get here in Alma are meant to be representative of his larger ministry and that they're also meant to parallel sermons that we find later on in the book of Alma. The sermon that we just finished in Alma 5, for example, has really strong parallels to the sermon that Alma gives to his son Helaman in Alma 36. We won't go too deep into that right now. My point is just to remind you that what we are reading in the book of Alma is not a shot for shot history. Mormon has a strong hand in crafting what we are reading and he's deliberate in how he does it. And Alma is doing way more work than what we see. So let's get into the chapter now with Alma chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Here we get the aftermath of Alma's sermon in the church in Zarahemla. Mormon tells us, Now it came to pass that after Alma had made an end of speaking unto the people of the church, he ordained priests and elders by laying on his hands according to the order of God to preside and watch over the church. This isn't the first time priests, elders, and we can add teachers were ordained to watch over the church. Perhaps some of these are new leaders. Perhaps some of them were already leaders, but this is an opportunity to renew and commit for the people. In addition to ordaining leaders, there were those who had not been members of the church before this who repented and were baptized, and there were those who had been members of the church who wouldn't repent and were no longer numbered among the church. The hinge point for both was the issue of repentance, or put more simply, of change. It didn't matter so much who people were prior to this moment, but rather if they were willing to change and use whatever the Lord had blessed them with to feed the hungry, care for the widow, and clothe the naked. Some people changed and some people chose vanity over following the self-sacrificing example of the Messiah. What saves the people at this moment, however, was that the church itself didn't change. The church was not allowed to become a vehicle for vanity and oppression. The central ethic of equality that was established at the waters of Mormon still remained with the church, even after decades. As Alma the Elder said way back in the land of Helam, "'Ye shall not esteem one flesh above another.'" or one man shall not think himself above another. Mormon wants us to understand something about this moment in the church in Zarahemla. He says in Alma chapter 6, verse 5, Now I would that ye should understand that the word of God was liberal unto all, that none were deprived of the privilege of assembling themselves together to hear the word of God. It could be that Mormon is just emphasizing the point that we've just made, that even though there was this moment of transition within the community of the church, with some people joining the church for the first time and some people leaving the church, that the church remained constant in its commitment to teach the word of God to anyone who would listen. But Mormon has more records from this time than we do. And it's possible, even likely, that the members of the church who would not repent and whose names were blotted out were pretty bitter about that fact. It's likely that they didn't think of themselves as wicked and in need of repentance. And it's likely that if they were to tell their story, it would be a little different. Maybe something like, Alma is a terrible leader. He couldn't manage to lead as chief judge. He drove the Amlicites to rebellion, and now he can't lead the church. He's excluding us from the church because he's scared that he's losing even more of his power over to the people. It might not have been exactly like that, but I don't think that I'm too far off base here. And Mormon could be slipping this little bit in almost as a response to Alma's critics. Maybe even as evidence for his defense of Alma and the church, Mormon goes beyond noting that the church didn't restrict anyone from hearing the word of God and points out that the church was even commanded to gather together often and to fast and pray in behalf of those people who didn't know God. We sometimes mistake the Book of Alma for a book about war and political turmoil, and there certainly is a fair amount of that. But the Book of Alma is really a missionary book. It's about a church that is committed to gathering God's children into the fold of the Good Shepherd. The church isn't naive. It knows that there are wolves as well as sheep, and when the wolves get in among the shepherd's fold, they have to be chased away, especially if they can disguise themselves as sheep. But the goal is still to gather those who are willing to be gathered. Wrapping up this chapter, let's move on to verses 7 and 8, where we see Alma finishing up with the church in Zarahemla, which is on the west of the river Sidon, and then crossing the river to the city of Gideon on the east side of the river Sidon. The city of Gideon was named after the same Gideon who led Limhi and his people out of the land of Nephi and who contended with and was killed by Nehor, We're going to see in Alma 7 that the city of Gideon stands in contrast to the city of Zarahemla in many ways, some of which parallel the contrast between Gideon and Nehor. Mormon closes this chapter by noting that Alma declared the word according to the revelation of the truth of the word, which had been spoken by his fathers, and according to the spirit of prophecy which was in him, according to the testimony of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who should come to redeem his people from their sins and the holy order by which he was called. And thus it is written, Amen. Alma is a student of the scriptures. He's also a student of the spirit. And he knows that the only thing that can save his people is following the Messiah. That's a pretty final way for Mormon to end this chapter. The only other time that he says anything like, and thus it is written, Amen is when Alma's own record ends in Alma 44. It may be that Mormon wants to bookend what he sees as the heart of Alma's ministry. In Alma 1, we have the conflict with Nehor, Alma 2 and 3, the Amlicite Rebellion. In Alma 4 through 6, Alma's giving up his judgment seat and setting the church in order in Zarahemla. And then starting in Alma 7 is really where Alma dives into this role as traveling minister. Whatever he intended... Mormon clearly sees the end of chapter 6 as the end of a major section of the Book of Alma. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Ison.